Beginning in early 1976, the citizens of Circleville, Ohio, began receiving sinister handwritten letters. The anonymous author knew many personal, de personal details about each resident and claimed to be watching them. All the letters were postmarked from nearby Columbus, Ohio. For 18 years, he terrorized the citizens with one, one person dead and another in jail for attempted murder. What exactly happened in Circleville, Ohio? You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of the Circleville Letter Writer. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist, because it's fucking humid basement. It's, it's very humid. Man. It's so humid you could put it on like a coat. It's more humid than humid. More humid than humid. <laughs> God. Uh-oh. It's Friday night. Uh-oh. And we're knocking shit over. It's Friday, Friday, gotta get down on Friday. No? No? Pretty good. What are we drinking tonight, Arlo? Tell the people. Yeah, we're going with an old standby red label button. I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, we are going with Monday Night Brewing Slap Fight. Because this case happens in Ohio, and we can't get Ohio beer. It's weird. You would think that we could get Ohio beer. Yeah, because it's there's a lot of Ohio beer. Great Lakes Brewing Company is one of the best breweries in the country. Can't, can't get, get it. it. Can't get it in Georgia. Not going to happen. <laughs> so if you are from Ohio and would like to send us some Great Lakes. Actually, if you're from anywhere near Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, <laughs> you can get it and then you can send it to us we would love some great lakes brewing company any of their award-winning beers for sure but since we can't get it we're settling for monday night we don't mind monday night it's one of the best breweries in the state of georgia so we're gonna drink it i'm still upset that they don't make the eye patch l anymore they don't no Unbelievable. No, it that was, was so the good. Best. But anyway, we digress. Um, we had some <laughs> fanboy experiences this week. Oh my God, it was amazing. And then we also have finally gotten off our asses. And by the time you hear this episode, it will be on social media that we are pre selling our t shirts. T shirts? Oh, what about the beer glasses? We're going to sell oh, You got to get off your ass and buy them. Oof. If that's on me, then it's going to be a while. <laughs> no, actually, we're going to start on those, too. Hope We'd like to do those closer to Halloween, so be on the lookout. So you can get your drink on. Get your, get your, get your, get your drink on. Unfortunately, we fell out of the top 100 in Britain. I didn't oh, even, my God. I didn't even know we were in the top 100 in Britain, but <laughs> we were. So thank you, Across the Pond. We did... And continue to get a lot of text messages and new followers on Instagram from our Rebecca Gould case and uh, a lot of kind words out there. 
Uh, Miss Bucholtz has started a podcast based around her findings, and you can look her up. It's on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. So if we piqued your interest, please look that podcast up. I think she has three episodes out there right now, and she's got a couple of posts on the Facebook pages that we referenced during our episode. So please give her a listen. But let's dive right into it. We're going to spare you the 27 minutes of bullshit that we usually give you. (laughs) Yeah, this case is definitely one that we were bound to cover at some point. And it just so happened fate (laughs) sent it our way. It's true. This may be one of the weirdest cases in the history of cases. So, as Coach alluded to in the... Opening, in 1976, several Circleville, Ohio residents began receiving strange letters detailing personal information about their lives. Some of them were accompanied with lewd drawings, very detailed things that only very close personal friends would know. But the Circleville, Ohio resident, Miss Mary Gillespie, yeah, she's going to be the focus because um, she has, the letters have become public record. But when we talk about the Circleville letter writer, we have to understand that there's been over a thousand letters sent by this person, by this anonymous person. One thousand letters. And most of them have not seen the light of day. And Miss Mary was accused of a supposedly non-existent affair with the superintendent of schools, and she was the bus driver in that area at school. Yeah, she's going to receive a letter that's going to state, her first letter is going to say, stay away from Massey, which is the, the superintendent. Don't lie when questioned about knowing him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house, and I know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified, and everything will be over soon. She's going to receive that letter, and essentially she's going to hide it. And she actually receives two or three letters before her husband receives a letter. She's going to receive two letters before her husband receives it. They were all postmarked from Columbus, Ohio, and a big deal has been made out of the postmark, but... And I'm just going to go ahead and interject here. Well, you have to understand that the postmark is going to be about 25 25 to 30 miles north of Circleville. So whomever is sending this letter is sending them from Columbus. Right. And the thing is, what I was going to touch on is it could be someone that lived in Circleville that drove to Columbus to work. Because 25 to 30 miles in 76 was not that big of a commute. I mean, you're going to drive... Why not? 30 miles every time you're going to send a letter? If you're going to work and you go buy a post office in Columbus. Well, I mean, that makes sense, but... Of course it makes sense. I came up with it. (laughs) (laughs) But no return address was ever, ever on the letters. But within... We have to to explain that these letters were sent in block lettering. Every every single solitary letter of 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 the actual letter is going to be in... Um, large print block, yeah, La- large print block capital letters. 
very, very easy to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? To, it's not hard to reproduce, reproduce this. Yeah. That's a good word. Yeah. It's not hard to reproduce these letters if you are so inclined, which that might come into, uh, importance later. Are you foreshadowing? I'm trying to, but I'm failing at it. So, let's get at it, Bubba. So, Mary keeps the letters hid from her husband. Ron receives one, and then in Ron's letter, it states that if Ron does not stop his wife's affair, his life would be in danger. After two weeks, the writer threatened to go public with the affair allegations, broadcasting it on TVs, CB radios, yeah, and it's billboards. Say, yeah, it's gonna, the letter's going to say, Gillespie, you've had two weeks to act and you've done nothing. If you do not stop this affair, I'm going to go public on CBs, radios, billboards, signs, whatever. Now, Mary and Ron only told three people about the letters. And those three people were Ron's sister, her husband, Paul Freshour, and Paul's sister. Now, Mary had some ideas about who might be sending the letters, and they decided to have Paul write letters to the suspects, claiming that they knew who the letter writer was. Well, some of the letters were signed W, and the superintendent's son happened to be William Gillespie. So that's who they're going to suspect as the letter writer. So they're going to write letters to him claiming they know who he is, they know why he's writing these letters, and Paul's going to claim that there was nothing violent in those letters, but they were just telling him, stop. Right, and according to Paul and Paul's sister, the letters actually did stop for a couple of weeks, but then that all changed, and they started up again. And supposedly... They started receiving phone calls, and this came to a head on August 19th. Well, before that, um, they're going to start experiencing uh, letters and signs claiming that not only was Mary involved with the superintendent, but their 12-year-old daughter was involved with the uh, superintendent having a sexual relationship. And Ron himself is going to wake up early in the morning and go and along. go along the routes of her bus and take down many, many signs claiming that she was having this sexual relationship. So he's going to try to protect his daughter's uh, feelings by preventing her from seeing any of these these signs. Now, Ron receives a phone call on August 19th, 1979 supposedly from the writer. The call seemed to confirm Ron's suspicion on who it was. He grabs his gun and then kisses his daughter goodbye and tells her that he's going out and he'll be back. It's very important to point out that the daughter is going to claim that his her dad seemed very normal, didn't seem out of sorts at all. And despite... The letter stating that they knew Paul's red and white pickup truck, he jumps in it and takes off. Now, a few minutes later, Ron is found dead in his pickup truck from a single car crash or single car accident 
where his pickup truck crashed into a tree. Investigators learned that Ron had fired at least one shot from his gun before crashing. Now, Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe questioned and eliminated at least one suspect in the case, but that suspect has never been named. He then turns around and rules Ron's death an accident, claiming that he lost control of the vehicle and crashed while driving driving drunk. And this now, is going to come from... It's, it's important to point out that Ron's blood alcohol is going to be 1.6%. How about 0.16? Because 1.6, he'd be dead. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's dead anyway. Well, true, but he would but, never yeah, got behind the wheel. Point one six, which is almost which, twice the limit. Which at the time in Ohio, the the legal drinking oh, limit was point one zero. Right. Which is still, man, I have blown in a breathalyzer in Georgia. It's point oh eight. It was one. Point oh here for a long time, well, and then I think nationwide it kind of went to that point. That may be so, but I know for a fact when uh, in Georgia it's point zero eight, and I have blown in a breathalyzer. At you know, a friend of mine had one, and point zero eight is way beyond the point I would ever try to drive. I knew for a fact I was like, man, I am way too intoxicated to drive. Let me blow in this breathalyzer. It's like 0. 0.08. I was like, holy shit. Like, that's just at the limit? No way. So this this gentleman, according to the police on the scene, is quite intoxicated. But strangely, everyone that knows the man is going to claim that he wasn't a drinker at all. Not just a recreational drinker not just a occasional drinker but he didn't drink at all according to the people that knew him which that's going to be quite strange yes and several residents soon received letters stating that sheriff radcliffe had been involved in a cover-up according to paul freshour sheriff radcliffe initially agreed that the death was a result of foul play However, he changes his mind when his prime suspect passes a polygraph test. And we all know how accurate those are. Yeah, not very. There's a reason they're not admissible in court. But Sheriff Radcliffe is running for the president of the National Sheriff's Association. Sheriff Radcliffe has been sheriff of this town for an exceptionally long time. His father... He he was he has his own Wikipedia page, which maybe he wrote, maybe he he maybe he wrote himself, maybe he didn't. But he is the longest serving sheriff in the history of the United States. He was elected in like 1964 or something like that, and didn't leave office till like 2000 something. Yeah, he passed away in 2014, I think. Well, it it's been a while, and his father happened to be the sheriff before him, and his son happened to be the sheriff after him. Hmm. So hmm. the Ratcliffs have ran this town for decades, and the fact that he's running for the sh- the the office of n- the president of the National Sheriffs Association may lead credence to the fact that he wanted to cover it up because if his if the crime rate in his town happened to go up, it might affect his chances of being the uh, National Sheriff of the Year or whatever. Now. After all of this, 
Mary and the superintendent acknowledge that they do have a relationship, this although... Is, this is years after, though. Although they claim that it did not what, start until after the letters yeah, were sent. Well, this is... Though that is true, this is going to be years after her husband died. It's going to be like six years. We have to... Uh, yes, it is. No, Don't shake your fucking head at me. They were going to use it in his defense. No, the, whose defense? Fresh hours. Well, he's not accused of uh, attempted murder two years after. Uh, How many years after? He's accused of murder like eight, 1983. The first, the. Okay, you're Ron's, right. I'm sorry. Ron's. Ron, right. Ron, <laughs> saw, hey, I said I was sorry. Now stop. <laughs> Don't you raise your voice at me. Ron dies in like fucking 1977. I understand that. We have to My understand. My math was wrong. The, the, these fucking Shut the fuck up and let's go on with it. <laughs> these letters are like 18 fucking years, man. All right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus. That hurt. <laughs> All right. So, so in February so what? of 1983, Mary was harassed along her bus route. Well, we have to understand that Ron dies in 1977. We, I think we've established we that We have twice. not established that. You didn't establish that. No, but you quite well pointed it out three or four times. I'm trying to, but you're 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 just going on. You're just ignoring the fact that this is fucking years difference. But go ahead. Six years later, but anyway. I mean, is that not a long amount of time? It is a long time. And during that time, there's been... Still letters being written. Yeah, hundreds of letters being written. And people are actually moving out of the town, taking their children out of the schools... And they're getting the hell out of Dodge because they're like, no, I'm because not dealing with this. This person knows their secrets, man. Yeah. So, can I go to 1983 or you got something I mean, else you want to talk I about? I mean, I guess. You got something going on between 77 and 83 you want to touch on? If you, I mean, if you want to go on. So, in February. I'm not going to stop you. In February, I don't know. I think I'm, you've tried twice. I'm, I'm just saying. In February of 1983, Mary was <laughs> harassed along her bus route. The letter writer apparently began placing threatening signs next to the road. One day, Mary had had enough and decided to go and rip down one of the signs. Well, it's ironic that the, the sign she ripped down was slanderous against her daughter. She passes several signs accusing her of certain things, but the sign she happens to stop at is the sign that happens to be booby-trapped. Coincidence? I don't know. Now, the booby-trapped that he is referring to was depicted in the Unsolved Mysteries episode as basically a box on the end of a post. And if you had ripped or tried to rip it down in a fit of rage, the booby trap would have worked. It was it, rigged to shoot a to small shoot pistol. a small pistol into that person's face. It was right at that level, but for whatever reason, it didn't fire when no. she pulled it down. And so she takes it, puts it on the bus, takes it to the authorities. They look at the weapon and. A crude attempt had been made to rub off the serial number, but lab tests were able to raise the number, and it was determined that the gun had belonged to none other than Paul Freshour. Which is very strange. And what's even more strange is he had just recently separated from Ron's sister, who he had been married to. Karen. Yes. 
Now, Paul would claim that the gun had been stolen several years prior. Several months prior. On February 25th, 1983, Sheriff Radcliffe asked Paul to meet with him and take a handwriting test. He asked Paul to try and copy the handwriting from the letters. Which is insane because that is the most ridiculous way to test someone's handwriting. He would double down and even have Paul try to write letters that Sheriff Radcliffe would verbally repeat to him. Yeah, they ask him to... Try as hard as he can to copy it. Yeah, purposely copy the writing style of the letter writer. Instead of, here, dictate this. Yeah, which is very strange. That is not the way handwriting tests are conducted in any up-and-up precinct in the entire United States. That's just not how things are done. And what I would say about Paul is the fact that he tried to emulate it as as closely as possible. If I knew that I was under investigation for some sort of crime, I would fuck that up as hard as I could. Well, and Paul states that Sheriff Radcliffe never once told him that he was a suspect. He was he had told him to copy him under the guise of we're just trying to see how this could be done, if anyone could copy it. And basically, he snowed him into believing that he was actually helping the police. So afterwards, after all this bullshit with the handwriting, Paul took Sheriff Radcliffe back to his house, to his garage, and showed him the different places that he kept his gun and ultimately the last place he had placed it. And that's when he noticed that it was missing. Yeah, apparently Paul had no idea that he was uh, a suspect, which is kind of foolish on his part. So afterwards... Anytime the police are talking to you about a murder, you better attempted murder... Shut up. You better realize that you're a suspect. Why else would they be talking to you? You know what I'm saying? And one thing that I have come to the realization of is once they start down that road, the only word that you utter is the word lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> that puts a stop to everything. That or no comment. So on October 24th, 1983, Paul goes on trial for the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie. Although he was never charged with writing the threatening letters, they became a crucial part of the evidence against him. A handwriting expert testified that Paul was the letter writer. Mary also testified that she believed that he was the the writer after his wife visited her with the same suspicion. Keep in mind, they're going through a divorce. And what's very strange about this case is Paul wanted to take the stand to defend himself, but 37 letters were admitted into evidence, and the judge informed Paul that if he took the stand to defend himself, over 1,000 letters would be admitted into evidence. I would have been like, okay, let's go. That's what I would have said. But, of course, he was scared, and he made, a, he made a decision not to take the stand. Now, Paul's boss would go on and testify that he was not at work on the day that the booby trap was found. However, Paul had an alibi for most of the day. Proclaiming his innocence, he was convicted and was given 7 to 24 years for attempted murder. Again, they never tied him to the actual letter writing. Or they never charged him, I should say. They did tie him to it, but they never charged him. And conspiracy theories out there 
revolve around the fact that if they had charged him, then all 1,000 would have to have been put into evidence. And since some of the letters cross state lines and county lines, then the Bureau of Criminal Investigation for Ohio, that's their um, state agency, would have become involved. And then ultimately the FBI would have become involved. So that is one of the theories out there as to why. Yeah, but if you're innocent, why not invite that, you know? I think he tried to in his, and we'll get into it, but anyway. (laughs) So while he was in prison, he received letters from the writer. Well, it wasn't uh, immediate. He does receive letters from the writer, but it was after. uh, It was right about the time he was trying to get parole. Um, what they thought, they thought they had their man and the letters would stop because he was in prison, but the letters didn't stop. The and they letters still continued to be postmarked from Columbus, even though he was in prison in Lima, which is 90 miles from Columbus. And if you don't know anything about how prisons work, anything that inmates receive or send out is gone over. Well, the sheriff himself in Circleville is going to go to the prison and complain that, hey, all these letters are still coming. We have to stop Paul from sending them. So he's actually going to go to solitary confinement where he's going to be alone. He's going to have no pens, no paper, nothing in order to write letters. And the letters are still going to be coming in into Circleville. And at his parole hearing, He had a pristine record as a model inmate, and the only reason that he was denied was based on the letters. Even though the 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 warden would write a sworn affidavit is going to write a sworn affidavit that states that it is impossible for him to be be the one that was writing the letters, but that did not matter to the parole board. They still saw him as completely guilty of doing these these letters how how can you possibly be writing letters from from 90 miles away from columbus have the letters postmarked from columbus all your letters are going to be searched they're going to be they're going to be uh scrutinized they're going to be read they're going to be all these things it's going to be proven that he did not ask anyone to write these letters so was somebody working on his behalf without him having to explicitly ask? Or is he completely innocent? I think he's completely innocent. Yeah, me too. In May of 1994, Paul was finally paroled. He continued and continued up until the day he passed to maintain his evidence. Yeah, his innocence. He's going to pass in 2012. He's going to create his own website. He's going to create a basically like a 140-page research paper about the Circleville letters and pretty much just proclaim his innocence until the day he died. Now, journalist Martin Yant has investigated the story and found another possible suspect that could be the letter writer, even though he does not divulge who that could be. He also discovered that 20 minutes before Mary found the booby trap, another bus driver on Mary's route had seen a suspicious man standing next to a yellow El Camino. The man was at the same spot where the trap would later be found. Yant also found that the possible suspect's brother owned the same type of car. Well, 
from from the research I did, it was um, the suspect in question is going to be Mary uh, Karen, um, his ex-wife, uh, uh, Paul's ex-wife. It's going to be the the description is going to meet is going to match her boyfriend at the time. And he's going to basically the 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 eyewitness is going to say that they saw the yellow El Camino. The man was standing there, meeting the description of her boyfriend, and he simply pretended like he was urinating or whatever, just turning his back on the the traffic, trying not to be seen. Not, but not only did it match her the description of her boyfriend, Karen's older brother happened to drive a yellow El Camino, so it's. A lot of evidence is pointing towards Karen trying to set Paul up. And from all, all the research I did, their, their divorce was extremely ugly. Ugly, yeah. Now, this is from the Unsolved Mysteries page, but they state that Mr. Martin Yant and others have suggested that there were at least three letter writers involved in the Circleville letter writer case, none of whom were Paul. One was believed to be the superintendent's son who, you know, we've already touched on. The second was believed to be a co-worker who was infatuated with Mary. And the third was believed to be Paul's ex-wife, Ron's sister. It is believed that the ex-wife's boyfriend was the man seen next to the El Camino, like Coach stated. Yeah, the the the, the bus driver that Unsolved Mysteries touches on is his name is David Longberry. And it's going to be said that he uh, was infatuated with uh, Mary. He hit on her, tried to get with her or whatever, and she rebuffed his advances and said that maybe possibly that he was very bitter and started writing the letter campaign in order to get back at her. But that would not explain how he knew the intimate details of everyone else in town. That is very true, but... David, in 1999, is going to be living with this elderly couple, and they have a granddaughter, and he is actually going to rape the granddaughter in the house with everybody present, and once the the granddaughter confesses to the grandparents, they confront David, he's going to run away and end up hanging himself. Yeah, in Texas, and we'll touch on that too. Yeah, but now... Yeah, that doesn't explain... The fact of the matter is... We focus on Mary and her husband, but we, we, we forget the fact that over a thousand letters are going to be sent to various, various people. There's going to be a letter sent to um, a local judge that's going to be accusing him of killing, of murdering a local pregnant school teacher named Vicki Koch, and that murder is still unsolved. There's going to be a letter sent to a very prominent, uh, the the county coroner named Dr. Carroll, he's going to receive a letter accusing him of molesting children. There's going to be over a thousand letters sent throughout the county with all these personal secrets. And Dr. Carroll would stop practicing and leave for Florida. Yeah, he's, he's going to get the fuck out of town. So now we are going to touch on more of the case around Mr. Fresh Hour. He would believe and believed up until his death that the murder was a cover-up by the sheriff 
And it should, there's three points here, according to the research that I did. It should have been heard by the jury during his trial that Fresh Hour's ex-wife was living on Mary Gillespie's property in a trailer where Mary had just evicted Fresh Hour's parents from. Yes, she does that in order to make room for her sister. Yeah. The divorce court in their divorce hearing should have known about the letters. So now during Fresh Hour's trial, the jury was unaware of the divorce proceedings and where Fresh Hour's ex would not mention the letters at all during the divorce. Mr. Fresh Hour was denied discovery of the booby trap and his attorney, Mr. De Pascal should have pointed out to the jury that they were not allowed to look at the booby trip. Why? Yeah, the only person on record as seeing the booby trap is Mary herself, which to me is very suspect as well. Now, Unsolved Mysteries would touch on the fact that little part of the yellow and black El Camino and how that should have been a red flag. However, the prosecutor Klein denied putting that into evidence. Now, Fresh Hour's attorney did not talk to anyone about the El Camino, the booby trap, and none of that was presented or heard by the jury. Yeah, that's just a, that's just a damn shame. That's uh, that is a huge mistake on his lawyer's part. And supposedly De Pascal also represented Fresh Hour in the divorce proceedings and used investigators, but for some reason he didn't use investigators in his client's attempted murder case. So there's another red flag. Now, another thing that the attorney had a chance to do was to point out that Sheriff Radcliffe had claimed in the media that he caught many smuggling letters from the jail. And in fact, not a single one was caught coming from the jail. This would have created doubt and put a huge spotlight on Sheriff Radcliffe. Now, also, Fresh Hour was denied discovery of the letters for independent examination. This should have been heard by the jury. Now, the letters claim that Prosecutor Klein is the one who had an affair with the school teacher that wound up pregnant and murdered. In the appeals process, Mr. Fresh Hour's attorney, D. Pascal, did not use this at all. Since Klein referred to the thousands of letters, that should have been allowed to be put into evidence as well. For some reason, D. Pascal did not challenge that aspect as well. So D. Pascal was heard saying that nothing good would come from the letters. Now, supposedly, as confirmed by the state of Ohio Department of Corrections, Fresh Hour never wrote the obscene and threatening letters for the ten and a half years he was in prison, and they were in the same writing style as all the other letters, and this was even admitted by Sheriff Radcliffe. Now, in the appeals process, Fresh Hour, it was determined that Fresh Hour never wrote the letters, and it was proven scientifically. Now, like Coach touched on, it is a fact that Sheriff Radcliffe went to the prison very often, or called the prison even more often, claiming that Fresh Hour was still writing the letters. This would cause Fresh Hour to be put in solitary confinement, and there was no proof at all. 
Now, Prosecutor Klein. Yeah, but even though he's in solitary confinement, the letters are going to still continue to come. Right. Now, while Prosecutor Klein, which is at the time of his appeals, was an affiliate court judge, referred to the letters during the trial, only 39 was allowed to be put into evidence, not the other 961. (laughs) He also hid the fact that there was letters that involved him. If Freshour was so guilty, why all the denials on the letters? And the letter stating that when the letter writer writes one to Freshour and it says, would you stop trying to get out? When we set someone up, we set them up for good. Basically, after he fails to uh, get his appeal to get paroled, he himself is going to receive a letter that says, "When we we told you two years ago, when we set them up, they stay set up. So no one is listening to Paul. He is trying his best to convey his innocence. And there's, at the very least, some circumstantial evidence to claim to prove that he's innocent. Maybe he has accomplice. Maybe he has an accomplice that's helping him, but he's not." dictating that from prison no not at all if he was so guilty why was he denied or his attorneys denied discovery of the booby trap if he was so guilty why did prosecutor klein hide evidence and refer to the obscene and threatening letters during the trial i think they were basically just trying to get a verdict they were trying to close this case as as quickly as possible i don't think the people involved really cared who was guilty they just wanted it over you know what i'm saying yeah now, had Klein actually charged Freshour with the letter writing, he would have gotten much more prison time than just the attempted murder charge because many of the letters contain arsenic. And this was more so attempted murder than the actual attempted murder charge on the booby trap. Yet, Klein would have lost control of the other 900 letters that were not in evidence. And he could not afford to do that since he was trying to become a judge. There is no way that Klein could have explained any of this and those responsible for Fresh Hour's due process have confirmed that he could not have explained it. It was ignored. It was covered up and there was excuses and abuse of power in Mr. Fresh Hour's case. Now, one of the theories out there is that Radcliffe basically controlled the town, kind of like Coach said. His family had been the sheriff. Yeah, Sheriff Radcliffe. Yeah, forever. And supposedly he had some dirt on Mary, but that's never been proven. Radcliffe did try to use an inmate to keep Fresh Hour in prison. First, the inmate's grandfather picked him up and saw no letter. Next, Radcliffe did not even get the letter fingerprinted, which should have been done immediately. And Fresh Hour's attorney, Mr. D. Pascal, knew this and should have made the jury aware of it in the appeals process. And this is where the obscene and threatening letters would cross state lines. And there are letters postmarked from Columbus that made it to California and no charges were ever levied by the FBI. Really? Yeah. And one of the theories is, and one of the postulates is, is it possible that Radcliffe would not allow the Columbus, Ohio FBI to get involved? Now, what letters reached California? What? It was never detailed which letters, but it, was, it sounded like, from what I researched, that some people had moved from Circleville to California, and they were sent a letter that way. Still getting letters. Yeah. Now we're going to touch on the bus driver, David Longberry. He was a very, very good suspect for the letters. 
Now, there is a man named Kenneth Reed who was over all of the school bus drivers. And Longberry, like we stated, was a school bus driver. Whoever was responsible for the letters knew everything about the school system. And like we previously stated, Longberry raped an 11-year-old girl and immediately hung him or moved to Texas and hung himself. His body goes unidentified for 10 years. Wow. He goes to Texas in 1999. And this is confirmed by the Texas police. After a decade of searching, the authorities confirmed that Longberry was dead. So from 1999 to 2009, Longberry was dead in Texas unidentified. It's believed the letters continued around the time of Longberry's disappearance in 1999. No one knew where Longberry was for those 10 years, and the Texas police didn't lie about it. Freshour believes the letters stopped in late 98 or 99 when Longberry went to Texas. And according to attorney D. Pascal, or I'm sorry, according to Freshour, attorney D. Pascal knew about Longberry, but as usual, did nothing and no investigation whatsoever was conducted on Longberry. It's odd that Fresh Hour was put in prison and denied copies of the letters by the U.S. District Court in Columbus. Now, supposedly, a handwriting expert stated that it was not Fresh Hour's writing, and they went on a local TV station, and this pissed off Prosecutor Klein and Sheriff Radcliffe, and they would scream that this had no bearing on the case because Fresh Hour was not in prison for writing the letters. He was in prison for attempted murder. But... The letters were used to convict him. All right, so prosecution would come to the prison in 1988 and ask the three questions I'm about to pose to you. One, was Fresh Hour writing the letters? Two, was Fresh Hour having someone write the letters? Or, and three, did Fresh Hour know who was writing the letters? All of these questions would favor Fresh Hour as not being the letter writer, but no one ever brought this to the to the attention at the appellate court level. Now, the sheriff, Mr. Radcliffe, would go on and tell many residents that he had Fresh Hour's fingerprints on the letters. If he did, then they should have charged him with writing the letters, which would have carried a longer prison sentence. But that is not the case. So here are some oddities in the Circleville letter writer case. It's odd that the letters foretold of Gordon Massey and Mary Gillespie's affair, and it's just so, or it just happened to be happenstance that it they did have an affair later. I don't believe that. I don't for either. One second. It's also odd that I the don't letters. Believe that. Oh, this letter claims we're having an affair, but we're not. But later on, we're going to have an affair. That is bullshit. Yeah. It's also odd that the letters claim that Dr. Carroll was molesting children, which turned out to be true. It's odd that letters claim baby bones would be removed from a baby grave and sent at random if an outside investigation into the murdered school teacher wasn't investigated by outside sources, which also turned out to be true. It's odd that the letters claim that Roger Klein was having an affair with the murdered school teacher and that murdered school teacher's case is still unsolved. And it's also odd that Mr. Ron Gillespie received a letter to him confirming that Massey and Mary's affair was going on and it should have been presented to the school board, but none of that happened. All right, so eight things everyone has a right to know in this case. Well, we need to point out the fact that also 
in uh, March 1992, Grove City Police Chief James McKeon, he's going to receive his own letters. He's going to get a letter that claims that the writer was a teacher named Mary. However, Mary Gillespie was a bus driver, not a teacher. But this, he's going to receive two letters. That's the first letter. The second letter is actually going to claim that the same person who killed Ron Gillespie is responsible for killing Vicki Coke three years later. But what's interesting about these two letters is the fact that the, the writing is going to be an all lowercase. Every single letter is going to be lowercase. Every letter from the Circleville letter writer beforehand is going to be in block lettering uppercase, very distinct handwriting. So did the Circleville letter writer suddenly change their MO, their writing style, or is this somebody different reporting on this specific development, which is strange. Extremely strange. He only receives two letters, but it seems to indicate that there is a second writer, which is very strange. Now, there's some unanswered questions that ultimately need to be answered if we're ever going to get to the bottom of this, and we'll go through those now. One is, did the letters ever stop when Freshour went to prison? They we did. know that, that they didn't. They did not. Did Sheriff Radcliffe actually go to the prison and inform them that Freshour was writing the obscene and threatening letters from the prison? He did. Yes, we know that's true. Did Radcliffe call the prison and tell them that he was writing letters from the prison? We know that he did call, but we would like to know how many times did he call? Did he call every time a letter showed up? He also went there personally. Yeah. The biggest question is, if Sheriff Radcliffe assumed that Freshour was writing the letters from prison, why didn't they the letters stop when he was put into solitary confinement? Well, it's a simple answer. He, he wasn't, wasn't writing he the, wasn't the fucking writing letters. The yeah. fucking letters. Now, it's not believed that Fresh Hour's fingerprints were on any of the letters, and the Ohio BCI, the Bureau of Criminal Investigation, admitted that there were fingerprints on the letters, but they were labeled unclassified. If they're unclassified, that rules Fresh Hour out. Therefore, he can't be the letter writer. This would have been nice to know because Fresh Hour's defense attorney who I would have to say is not very good at his job, should have raised immortal hell to get those a copy of those letters so that they could be privately tested and examined. If he had been given permission to have independent testing on the letters and the booby trap, it is extremely possible that the fingerprints would have confirmed that it was not him, and it may have confirmed some of the plausible theories out there that it could have been his ex-wife could have been Mary herself or it could have been it could have confirmed that they were Longberry's fingerprint but again all of this was denied to Fresh Hour so now we get into the last known letter to our knowledge and if you watch the Unsolved Mysteries episode this on is, this this is one of the most popular segments of Unsolved Mysteries of all time and we will definitely post it on our on our uh, social media pages, so you can see it yourself. But they, in fact, are going to receive a letter of them their own. Once they start investigating the Circleville letters, they're going to receive a letter claiming to be from the Circleville letter writer. Certainly, in the same type of uh, the same um, style as the Circleville letter writer, it's going to say 
forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you L sickos will pay from the Circleville letter, the Circleville writer. But my question would be, why is there an attempt to defend Sheriff Radcliffe? What is that about? Yeah, because in a previous letter, they accused him of covering it up. Yeah. Why now defend him? Very strange letter. Another question I would like an answer to is, how the hell did they know that Unsolved Mysteries was investigating it? Well, from my research, they sent the letter uh, a few months after the first um, segment aired about Circleville. And then they re they repackaged it to include the letter itself. Ah. So, I mean, and they interviewed uh, Paul. They interviewed a few people. They interviewed the sheriff. They inter- I'm not the sheriff, but they interviewed some investigators. They interviewed a lot of people in Circleville itself. So it's not unlikely that they knew what was going on. But that would lead to the actual writer still living in Circleville. True. Maybe he did. What, what would? Why would he not? The bottom line is, whoever wrote these letters knew a whole bunch about what was going on in this town. They knew everyone's secrets. It was a hairdresser. Probably. I mean, honestly, yeah. Like a barber or something like that along those lines. Bartender. Just got everybody's secrets and they knew them. Play me a song, Mr. Piano Man. Coming from a small town. Now, Circleville is small, but not that small. It's about 13,000 people, which is a pretty good amount of people. It's a little bigger. It's, It's bigger than the town I grew up in. But I'm telling you, the town I grew up in. If you farted, your mother knew about it before exactly. it got the stink yeah, away. It's very hard to get away with anything in my small town because everybody knew everybody else's business. So whoever wrote these letters definitely had an insight to what was going on, which also points to the fact that Paul wasn't responsible because he didn't live in that town. He was from a, a few towns over. Yeah, very odd case. So, so who wrote these letters? Was it more than one person? Everything I every everything that I listened to or watched on the YouTube was trying to point to the fact that it was more than one person. They tried to essentially blame David Longberry, the bus driver, for the first series of letters. And then they tried to point the finger at Karen to frame her ex-husband Paul in the second set of letters. But I don't know, man. It's just We'll get into our theories now because we can't just keep beating this dead horse. But I would go, just once you said that, thinking about bus drivers. It was a different time, you know, in the 80s for bus drivers. But you heard, and I mean, I drove a bus for about six months, even about seven years ago. And you hear stuff, kids talk to other kids, and that may lead credence to how someone knew a lot of the ongoing undercurrent of the town it could have been a bus driver it could have been hey i heard you know Susie saying that her mama's sleeping with so-and-so or i got a teenager on my bus and he says that he saw his neighbor miss so-and-so sleeping with so-and-so yeah but we're talking over a thousand letters i'm not saying that yeah i'm just saying that you know it leads credence to that it. takes some fucking persistence i mean just the level of persistence to do something like this is something that I have no idea. I couldn't. I couldn't fathom, really. Oh, mine to to stay consistent. My for thing is release them. Eighteen years. 
If no one's been charged in the letter writing, just release some of the letters. It would be nice. It would be nice to to see. Supposedly, there's some nasty drawings in some of them. Uh, yeah, like they were very crude. They were very accusatory. And they were not things that people wanted out. So that's why they haven't been released. Well, Mary, I think's in her 70s now. If she, you know, I want to say her late 70s. Um, she would have to be. I don't know. It's going to take a deathbed confession to be the Circleville letter writer. Or for some reason, they test the letters for DNA or fingerprints or something. I don't know. I don't know how the hell they would ever solve it. My theory is I would lead towards it being more than one person because having all of that knowledge, you would have to have multiple sources. Um, now, on the same, you know, talking out of both sides of my mouth, you could have the sources and be writing the letters yourself and just, like we said, it could have been, you know, a barber, a hairdresser, a bartender. and But, damn, that's a lot of people to... But to have this axe to grind against everybody, Mary, Mary Gillespie, specifically, because that's all we have to go on is the fact that we know that she was targeted very strongly. And she's basically, her story is basically the only reason we know about this case. Yeah. And what, what, what occurred in the phone call with her husband, Ron? I would love to have heard that. What, what caused, what angered him enough to get in his car? I believe, even though they say he wasn't a drinker, they say that blah, 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 blah. I think he was intoxicated that night. There's no record to state how long it was between the phone call and the time he left his house. Maybe he had a few more drinks. Maybe he was a secret drinker. I know several people that drink in secret. They don't want people to know that they drink the way they do. So maybe he was on the sitcoms. You know, Keith Whitley. Yeah, on for the example. Sit- sitcoms un- unlimited, whatever. You know, we reference this every time we talk about an unsolved mysteries case. Somebody posted on it that um, he could be a functioning alcoholic and just decided, all right, this is the last time I'm dealing with this shit. Well, I, you know, I, I go back to, like I just mentioned, Keith Whitley was a very famous country singer that nobody really knew that he had a drinking problem. And his father-in-law came to his house and said, hey, man, let's go play golf in about two hours. He said, yeah, man, I'll be there. And he fucking drank like 27 shots of vodka in two hours and, and died of uh, alcohol poisoning. But nobody knew he was a heavy drinker. That's what. So that's what makes me think that maybe Ron had a secret problem that nobody really knew about. And... And the stress of letters coming and phone calls coming would actually ratchet that up a little bit. I, I believe that 100%. And, but what occurred in that phone call that uh, caused him to get so enraged? And that's the only, the evident, the only, the only evidence we have that the Circleville letter writer, quote unquote, made a phone call. Maybe it was the, the, the writer. Maybe it wasn't. We don't know. It's just the fact remains that. Well, what's odd is he had, his gun had been fired, but yet he struck a tree. I'm, I think that he was running off the road. Yeah, I think, he, yeah, I do too. I think for sure that he was ran off the road in a situation where 
the the quote unquote writer was really watching the house like he claimed to be. And when he left, they followed him and they took care of him. They they finished they they followed through with their threat. They said you've had weeks to do something about it and you haven't done anything. So we're gonna take care of it ourselves. And I think that's what happened. But I honestly don't think Paul was involved. I don't think Paul did anything. No, I don't think Paul. I think he got railroaded. I think he was a victim of circumstance. It reminds me a lot of the, and it's not just this case, but there, there's so many cases out there where they the authorities lock on to a suspect and and no other yeah no other suspect will do yeah and despite a mountain of evidence to the contrary they just but the fact remains that it was Paul's gun, but when you look at that you have to also look at the fact that. No evidence at all was found at Paul's house. Nothing to tie him to this crime. But so you're telling me that this man was able to clean up every single solitary instance of evidence against himself. But he's too stupid to cover up the gun. Well, yeah, he's going to leave his gun sitting out in public where anyone else could find it. Even if it even if the booby trap had worked and killed her, people were going to show up on site and find that gun. You're telling me this man was smart enough to cover up every single one of his tracks except for his own gun. He's going to make a very crude attempt to scratch off the serial number. I don't buy that. Well, that leads credence to his ex-wife having access to the pistol. Yeah, his 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 ex-wife would certainly know where that's at. And I think, you know, there my research stated that there was a reason why that booby the quote-unquote booby trap didn't work is because Karen had no intentions of actually killing her sister. Right. She simply wanted to get Paul. Get Paul and you know, the divorce proceedings were very um contentious. They were very contentious, but the the result was very favorable towards Paul. He got custody of the children. He got so many. Yeah, he got the house. He got. She had to move into the trailer. Yeah, he got everything. So getting him in prison would open up a world of opportunity for Karen to take back her kids, take back the house, take back everything. So there's a lot of evidence pointing towards her, but it's circumstantial. There's no proof. There's no proof about anything in this case. And no, but there's enough the circumstantial problem. evidence out there that points to other people that should have been presented at trial because all you have to do is create reasonable doubt. And that's the problem that I saw with the trial is D. Pascal, his attorney, was either promised something or he's just incompetent. I, uh, I agree. He, he definitely hired the wrong attorney. Yeah, even though he had... He did a bang-up job in the divorce proceedings. He sent him down the river when it came to the attempted murder trial. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. All right, so we can keep going with our theories, but let us know what you think. Um, We kind of referenced it a little bit in the opening, but uh, we have a fan that received his stickers in the mail (laughs) and supposedly a letter from the Circleville letter writer yeah, yeah and what's was, funny is i was freaked out i was like man did you send that yeah to he texted me at work and he's like dude <laughs> what the hell 
And I was like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And <laughs> I hadn't even seen the the Facebook post. And so that's what led us to doing this case. So Yeah, it was a practical joke on the part of one of our listeners, but it inspired us. Been like, you know, we probably do need to cover this case already. It's on our list, so let's go ahead and cover it. So we appreciate that you inspired us. So thank you for that. So we would like to thank Mr. Chris Browning for being our muse for this episode. Yeah, because I freaked out. I was like, did you really send the, the Circleville letter to this guy? And so I'm like knee deep in work, and I'm like, what the, I ain't got time for this bullshit. And so he sends me a picture, and I'm like, uh, no, I'm pretty sure I would have remembered writing a letter. <laughs> and I mailed out all those stickers. But anyway, let's get into recommendations. Oh, shit, I don't have any. I'm going to recommend just the... um. The Netflix series of Unsolved Mysteries. And I'm actually going to recommend the episode of the Circleville Letter Writer of Unsolved Mysteries that we will post on our social media. Pretty amazing. But the Netflix series, man, watch that as much as possible. They did a great job. They did a super job. The one about the UFO, I just watched that one again. That one's weird as shit. The only one I have a quarrel with is the third one, which is all in French. I'm not here, we're to, lazy I'm not here to read. Well, my wife was like, <laughs> I hope they don't do another one like that because I can't continue to look at my Facebook and listen to the episode. I'm like, you lazy ass. Well, that's the same. That's basically the same thing I thought. <laughs> what I do is I put it on my cell phone and play PlayStation while it's playing. So I couldn't do that because I had to pay attention. Horrible. I know. Poor, horrible having poor to pay little att- coach. Horrible having to pay attention. <laughs> I'm going to recommend, if you haven't already done it, research the Wayfair Conspiracy. Oh, Jesus Christ. You're going to get us killed, bro. (laughs) The uh, the opinions are lower, not those of those of Coach. (laughs) Please direct all your hate mail and assassins towards Arlo. If you've not looked at it, look at it. And you can thank me later when it's four hours. It's pretty crazy. And you're like, Damn it, why did I start this? It's pretty crazy. It's either one hell of a glitch. Publicity stunt? Or, well, what, what publicity stunt are you going to do to kill your fucking... I would like to know how far... To kill your own business. I would like to know how far their stock crashed. <laughs> but anyway, that's our little recommendations. Uh, Coach, you got anything else about the Circleville Letter Writer? Or? I do not. Well, since you don't have anything, I will uh, remind you that you wanted to uh, end this episode with... Well, since you you questioned me on my candy bars and you were so cruel to say that... Payday's being canceled because that's oppressive to people that don't have a job. Payday is a fucking horrible candy bar. The best. You chastised me about my choice of Ferrero Rocher's, which are the most delicious candy of all time the question was candy bar (laughs) we're going to end this episode with since you're a georgia fan and i'm a tennessee fan we're going to question um what are your top five sec teams that are not your favorite team a reason why i want your top five sec schools is because i want to hear you say the words tennessee it's not gonna happen you you fucking know in the top five no in the in your top five of all SEC teams, it's not going to be. It's got to be. No. Yes. Now, since, well, I'm going to go old school. I'm not going to even acknowledge the University of Missouri don't, or Texas A&M. Don't go old school. 
Yeah, I'm not using current. Them. No, fuck them. SEC teams. Fuck them. All right, so current SEC teams, I would have to say my top five. Number five. Number five would have to be, this is going to hurt your heart, University of Alabama. You're out of your fucking mind. Nope. Jesus Christ, you front-running son of a bitch. I said number five. Now, number four would have to be Mississippi State. Wow. Number three would have to be LSU. Okay, I can dig that. Number two, and this has nothing to do with football, but number two would have to be Vanderbilt. Oh, wow. And then finally... My number one. The University of Tennessee. is not happening. Come on, man. Would have to be Ole Miss. Wow. Why Ole Miss? Um, I just think that whole Mississippi State and Ole Miss, they have this great sense of community. I liked Mississippi State. There was a defensive coordinator when I was in college that was there, and he was known for blitzing all the time. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact. And so that's why I, I like Mississippi State. Ole Miss, I just like their history. Mm-hmm. They are one of the only schools that have a veterinarian school <laughs> there. <laughs> but in in the southeast, I know that a lot of colleges have it, but and it pains me to say this, but Auburn's probably the top-rated veterinarian school. Behind them is Ole Miss. I, th- I want to say Ole Miss's veterinarian school is older than Auburn's. But both of them require their students, if you're in vet school, the men have to wear slacks and a shirt and tie to class, and uh, the females have to wear a mid-length or maxi dress. Okay. Well. You turn, your turn, your turn. All right. Well, definitely Tennessee's number one. You can't pick. I know. I can't pick my favorite team. But by a wide margin, Tennessee's the greatest SEC school of all time. I want to go on record to say fuck Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. Fuck them. They suck. And I'll agree with Florida. They will never, ever ever make any list of mine i will say this when florida plays tennessee i hope that the devil himself sucks up <laughs> in the ground and both of them go straight to hell but go ahead i feel the same way when georgia plays florida <laughs> all right so number five vanderbilt because you gotta have you have to have a little place in your heart for vanderbilt i really would truly love to see vanderbilt have a fucking national championship team i would definitely cheer for vanderbilt I like their baseball team. If Vanderbilt's undefeated and Tennessee's not, I'll cheer for. I'll, I would like to see Vanderbilt beat them, just so they go to the national championship. You just have to have a special place in your heart for Vanderbilt. All right, number four, Ole Miss, because Peyton's brother went there. Well, because Eli, and I'm a New York <laughs> Giants fan, and Eli Manning, two and zero against Tom Brady, in uh Super Bowls in the Super Bowl. That's right. So Ole Miss, uh, number three would be LSU because I really like Coach O. I like Coach O'Geron. He's amazing. Um, but one thing I really hate about LSU is the fact that they wear white at home and they number their five-yard lines. Yeah, I don't like that That's either. That's terrible. Yeah. I do like I, – I, I mean, I will cheer for them 
no matter if they're in their bowl game, definitely cheer for an SEC school. But why wear white at home? That's terrible. Well, it could be that it's 4,000 degrees in Louisiana when they yeah, play. For no, no, no doubt. Number two, simply because I really like their home uniforms, it's Auburn. That the the blue and the orange go together really well, so I like Auburn. And my wife, she started as an Auburn fan. She's no longer. She's a Tennessee fan. I won her over. I converted her to the dark side, but I'll support Auburn. And number one, with a bullet, because they are the only SEC school with a wrestling team, Missouri. That's my favorite SEC school other than Tennessee because. Once they came over from the Big 12, they did not get rid of their wrestling program, so therefore they are the only wrestling, the only school with a wrestling team in the SEC. They are in the conference, I believe they're in Conference USA, as far as wrestling goes, because you can't be the only team in your conference. So I'm going to go with Missouri. Good job. I really hope, you know, my birthday is September 8th. September 12th, Tennessee plays Oklahoma in Norman. I'm really hoping that I get to go. My wife and I want to visit all 50 states. One state we haven't been to is Oklahoma. I would really like to visit Oklahoma and watch Tennessee. Upset? I'm pretty much going to say they're going to take an L, but I would like to be there to see it. It'd be very nice. But yeah, Missouri definitely is the, the number one team other than Tennessee. So, Well, boys and girls, you heard it here first. We covered it all, man. We've covered football, Wayfair, and the Circleville <laughs> Railroad Robber. Don't you? No, Wayfair. I ain't got nothing to do with Wayfair, man. <laughs> I ain't got nothing to do with it. Well, boys and girls, uh, deuces. <laughs>